WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Alright, good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with science advisor Matt Moniz, the silent assassin Matt Costa, is out and about, still on his big trip. Have you been following along with his big trip on Facebook? Yeah, I have. It's uh, it's fascinating, the places that he's seeing. I wish I could be there with him. Although I'm glad I'm not, because there's two people in that cab of that truck, so it'd be really cramped if I was there. Yeah. But I wish them luck. I hope things are going well. It seems like they are. It looks like they're having a lot of fun. And that's what's important. He needs it. He needs the break, because he's been here plugging away behind the boards for the last, oh, how long we've been on now? Six plus years? Yeah. And uh, he's been here for pretty much every one of those episodes until recently. So we're glad that he's out there and enjoying a good time. And we had a good time here last week <laughs> with <laughs> was, our special guests. It was interesting, yeah. And it's uh, it's it's taken off like wildfire. I'm going to submit the clip of uh, of my son saying the, yeah. the word penis on the air to America's Funniest Home Videos. So who knows? You know, at the very least, maybe it'll get us a little bit of publicity for Spooky South Coast on, on uh, America's Funniest Home Videos, which anybody that watches our show via Spooky TV on SpookySouthCoast.com or checks out the video, I guess you'd call it Video Archive, Video Podcast, whatever you want to call it on YouTube, uh, you know that uh, this is one of America's Funniest Home Videos each and every week. Yeah, that's for sure. We live up to that. so But not enough to win any kind of $10,000 grand prize. That's the important part. If it, did, you know, if it did, that might be enough money to upgrade Spooky TV a little bit. I was personally hoping, hoping that we would win Mega Millions yesterday just so that you know, we could buy some, some better cameras for Spooky TV. That was the only thought that I had if I won $640 million. was I, I think I can go out and maybe I can buy that $120 webcam instead of just a $20 one. Yeah. That's all I thought about. Sure it was. <laughs> I thought about how I could best help the world of the paranormal with some of that money which is, you know, what we talk about here on Spooky South Coast. And my first thought was, of course, that I could buy the Amityville house, which is something that I've always wanted to do. Even though the new owners recently just bought it, you, you know that you're just screwing up all the audio on Spooky TV by moving that. Uh, they're, they're already complaining about it. That's what I'm trying to fix. <laughs> so uh, we, are, you know, we needed to win Mega Millions just so we could buy a new patch cord <laughs> so we could have better audio on Spooky TV. But, uh, you know, I've always wanted to buy the Amityville house and, and open that up to paranormal investigators. But one of the other properties that I've always wanted to buy was Maplecroft, which is the second home of Lizzie Borden. We talk a lot about... Yeah. The home of Andrew Borden, where the murders took place, but Maplecroft, of course, is where Lizzie moved later on in life, and we would love to to get the chance to get into that place, but uh, the owner's not really game for the paranormal investigation, which I'm surprised, because everything that I've heard about him, you know, he he wouldn't pass up a buck, but in this case, he is. So we'll talk a little bit about that coming up later on with our guests tonight, Michael Martins and Dennis A. Bennett of the Fall River Historical Society. They are the co-authors 
of the new book, Parallel Lives, a, sh- a Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and Her Fall River. And I'm going to h- attempt to hold the book up to the cameras on Spooky TV, but I might have to call on a couple guys to help me with it. Yeah. Hebo! Hebo! <laughs> this thing is massive. I'll hold it up to the Tim Cam here on Spooky TV, but uh, this thing is quite a volume, and it's, uh, it's extremely impressive, uh, the amount of work that went into this uh, it's it's eight plus years of work between michael and dennis putting this together but also the work to lay it all out uh to edit it to index it to design this outstanding jacket for it and to just to pick it up and hold it <laughs> is an outstanding effort as well but this is a complete picture of what fall river was like at the time of the borden murders and, and hopefully a more complete picture of lizzie borden herself Unlike any that we've ever heard before. I mean, we like to talk what, about what we think the Lizzie story is. But when we talk about it, we're looking at through the tunnel vision of a supposed murderess. So we're not really getting an accurate depiction of who Lizzie Borden might have been. We're getting an accurate depiction of who we think might have been the person that committed the crimes. And it's very important that those might be two different people. What would you do now? You, you screwed it all up? Uh hopefully no well we'll fix it at the break yeah but uh we just won't be able to switch cameras no so i'll just open up mini cam again would you just close it out yeah yeah just open it up again it should work so um we'll talk about the real lizzie borden coming up in a little while with michael and dennis and if you haven't picked up the book you can get it from the website uh, Lizzie Borden, com, and from the Fall River Historical Society's website, lizzieborden.org. But trust me, if you want to pick up the book and you're local, you want to just go to the Fall River Historical Society and buy it because you don't want to pay the shipping charges on this bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, if you're there and Dennis and Michael are there, they can sign it for you. And and uh, it's really – it's it's you can read in it the passion that they have for telling the complete story. And you can tell how, right early on, you can tell how a lot of what we think about Lizzie is going to be kind of thrown out the window. And so that's what I'm excited to talk to them about, the real Lizzie Borden tonight. Because if you want to say that the, para, the, you know, the, the paranormal is such a huge part of the Lizzie Borden legend, uh, then it's important to understand who you're talking about when you're trying to talk about Lizzie Borden the ghost. And I think that we've gone in there making way too many assumptions over the years, and so many strange and competing theories have developed as a result of the work of past, quote-unquote, historians who have uh, written their own books. I'm thinking of a Victoria Lincoln who came up with some theories that kind of became accepted part of the Lizzie culture without any real proof. Right. And looking at the work of the more modern-day investigators into the case who are coming at it from a paranormal bent, a lot of them, and they're bringing in a lot of the, uh, I don't want to say preconceived notions, but the conceived notions of what we think might have been the reasons why the murders happened, why it's left its mark on the location. And, uh, of course, you also have the psychic point of view and the Frank's box point of view where you're getting information from these methods that is adding to that Lizzie legend. And I'm talking, of course, in this regard, to the incest stories. Uh, But there has been some credence in the past for those stories through uh, communications. Of course, we've talked to Faye Musselman in the past who had communications and said that there may have been some allusions to that uh, in in some of the the letters amongst people that knew Lizzie Borden. So, 
you know, we'll get into all this and more coming up a little bit later with Dennis and Michael. Uh, we do want to remind everybody that coming up on April 21st is our graveyard shift at Slater Mill at the Slater Mill Museum in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Tickets are $99, and you get the chance to investigate all night long one of the most haunted locations in Rhode Island and the oldest mill in America. When The good thing about this is you're getting not only to hang out with the spooky crew, of course, myself, Matt Moniz, Andrew Lake will be there, uh, but uh, also Jeff Belanger, of course, who is uh, heavily involved with everything with Legend Trips, but uh, also Keith and Carl Johnson, who are two of the experts of the paranormal goings-on at Slater Mill. So they'll be there to give a presentation and to help lead the investigation as well. So I'm excited about this. We're going to have coming up in a few weeks, Riley and Stephen Black of Black Cross Paranormal. And they've been conducting some ongoing investigations into Slater Mill, kind of like what we do with Lizzie Borden, where they're keeping tabs on it and they're using it almost as a training ground for new investigators too, because they've been able to make a connection with the phenomena there. So they're going to come on the show uh, coming up in a couple of weeks and they're going to play some of the best clips that they've caught there. Uh, they've also, I know they've investigated there with Carl Johnson and I think Carl's going to try to join us that night as well. And uh, they've investigated with Joe Chin from Ghost Hunter. So we're going to try and give Joe a call to see if he can call in and, and give us his thoughts on Slater Mill as well. So it's, it's a fascinating place and it's uh, definitely going to be a fun event. Graveyard Shift at Slater Mill, April 21st. Tickets are $99, and you can purchase them by going to legendtrips.com or by going to spookysouthcoast.com as well. So, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to having the chance to go there, but of course, nothing compares to the Lizzie Borden House when it comes to investigating the paranormal. So we'll have some announcements coming up about another Legend Trip there uh, a little bit later on this year. All right, so before we get into the discussion with Michael and Dennis tonight, Moniz, what do you say we get a little bit weird? Go for it. Although, if you're like Moniz, you're a little bit weird all the time. Yeah. And if that's the case, then you know you don't need a segment on a radio show to be your excuse for it. But uh, nonetheless, let's do it. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today, which is wonderful. Weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird. <laughs> the Week in Weird. All right, our first story comes from our friends over in the UK, and it doesn't get any weirder than in the UK. They always seem to have the best weird stories. A politician in the UK stunned his town council colleagues by claiming that his real mother is a nine-foot green alien with eight fingers. Councillor Simon Parks, who was elected to represent Stakesby Ward and Whitby Town Council last month, said although he has had hundreds of close encounters with extraterrestrials, it will not interfere with his mission to help residents at the Seaside Resort. Speaking on YouTube, Councillor Parks said he first saw an alien at the age of eight months, when a traditional kite-shaped face with huge eyes, tiny nostrils, and a thin mouth appeared over his cot. He said two green sticks, stick things came in, I was aware of some movement over my head. I thought, those aren't mummy's hands. Mummy's hands are pink. And even though he's British, he means his own mummy, not the mummy. It says, I am your real mother. I am more. I am your more important mother. And he said after he contracted chicken pox at the age of three, his mother went to work and left him at home to fend for himself. I think that means his earth mother. Went to work and left home to defend himself, to fend for himself while an eight-foot doctor, dressed as a waiter, appeared to offer help. As an 11-year-old, he claims he was taken aboard on a craft by his alien mother and made to deal with the beings on board. 
He said, the reason extraterrestrials are interested in me is not because of my physical body, but because of what is inside of me, my soul. So he did say that his extraterrestrial beliefs did not come up on the doorstep while he was campaigning recently. Uh, and he says that it will not make any difference in how he performs his job. So I like how he does wait until after the election to announce that his real mother is an alien. Moniz, I know that you think that there's many politicians who are the progeny of aliens in uh, this country. There, there are some that I suspect may be directly aliens themselves. And and we're not we're not talking about the reptilian agenda, the David Icke stuff. We're talking about you know just your own political beliefs here. <laughs> well, yeah, that, but that's a whole nother show. All right. Well, we'll we'll move on from there. Uh, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, I'm in almost oh, every school bus and classroom. I go to school. You think I would uh, learn to shut those commercials off by now? Spartanburg, South Carolina. Police are searching for the vandals who opened a grave at a Spartanburg, South Carolina cemetery and stole a skull. Police believe someone opened the grave at Oakwood Cemetery and took the skull on Monday. The grave site was still in disarray on Wednesday. The headstone and cinder blocks were strewn around the area. The casket was partially exposed, and it was apparent that someone deliberately chipped away at the cement seal over it. The lid of the casket was also askew. There are graves dating back to the 1800s in Oakwood Cemetery, but the grave that was desecrated on Monday is from the 1960s. The cemetery is infamous in the paranormal community. It is often referred to as Hell's Gate Cemetery, or simply as Hell's Gates. The origin of the name is not clear, but it appears in many references to the cemetery. People have reported seeing unexplained mists and apparitions, hearing voices, and having problems with electronic devices while in the cemetery, and paranormal investigators list Hell's Gate on many internet sites as a place of unexplained activity. The South Carolina Paranormal Investigations website has a warning about the cemetery that says, Do not, and I repeat, do not go here alone or at dark. There have been several encounters with very hostile Satanists. So, of course, we here at Spooky South Coast... How many pacifist Satanists do you know? That's true. Uh, well, I mean, there's some. I know of a few. But that's more because they're lazy. Oh, okay. They're not quite fully committed to the cause. But, uh, you know, we, we here at Spooky South Coast do not condone any desecration of any graves. And uh, I think that we're going to end up seeing some bad news as a result of this because people are going to tie in this grave desecration with the fact that it is popular with the paranormal community. Even though the paranormal community is saying, well, there are Satanists involved, and it seems more likely to me that if there are Satanists, uh, and I, I mean fringe wannabe Satanists probably more than the real deal, right. uh, then I could understand them as being the ones who would desecrate the grave. I can't imagine any paranormal investigators would do that. But, unfortunately, the paranormal community will take the hit from that. Pack your bags, Monies. You speak French? Yeah. Un peu? Un peu. All right. A mountain looming over a French commune with a population of just 200 is being touted as a modern-day yeah. Noah's Ark yeah. when Doomsday arrives, supposedly less than nine months from now. A rapidly increasing stream of New Age believers have descended in, the camp, uh, descended in their camper vans uh, to the usual picturesque and tranquil in the Pyrenees Mountains, yeah. village of Pujarach. My French is a little rusty. They believe that when an apocalypse strikes on the 21st of December, the aliens waiting in their spacecraft inside the mountain will save all the humans nearby and beam them off to the next age. Well, of course. As the cataclysmic date nears, the goings-on around the peak have become more bizarre and ritualistic. For decades, there's been a belief that the mountain is the highest uh, in the mountain range and it possesses an eerie power. Often called the Upside-Down Mountain, geologists think that it exploded after its formation in the top land of the wrong way up. 
is thought to have inspired Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth and Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Since the 1960s, it's attracted New Agers who insist it emits special magnetic waves. Further, rumors persist that the country's late president, Francois Mitterrand, was transported by helicopter on the peak, while the Nazis and Israel's Mossad performed mysterious digs there. Now the nearby village is awash with New Agers who have boasted, boosted the local economy, though their naked group climbs up to the peak have raised concerns as well as eyebrows. Uh, among other oddities, some hikers have been spotted scaling the mountain carrying a ball with a golden ring strung together by a single thread. So, there you go. Not only are they planning on getting picked up by the alien, you know, race that'll save us on the 21st of December, but they're heading up there naked. Which, when I read that story, you know, as soon as they said alien spaceship coming to pick them up, I thought Matt Moniz. But then when they were going up there naked, I was like, definitely Matt Moniz. <laughs> uh, not in the mountaintop in December. No, in the, in the yeah. Pyrenees Mountains? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and here's the other thing, too. If it wasn't for the photos, and I'm not even sure that they're not doctored, I wouldn't really believe that Matt Costa is where that he says he is. <laughs> I, could, I could definitely picture them being there at, the, at this mountain, you know, waiting, not to get a ride from the aliens, but to laugh at everybody when they don't get picked up. That sounds that, like a Costa That would be kind of Costa, thing. yeah. All right, well, that does it for the Week in Weird this week. If you have any stories that you'd like to share with us, just send us an email, crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. We're always looking for things that are a little bit strange or off or things that just, you know, you think would be perfect for the show, which is things that are strange and odd. All right, why don't we take a break? When we come back, we will talk with Michael Martins and Dennis A. Bennett of the Fall River Historical Society about their new book, Parallel Lives, a social history of Lizzie A. Borden and her Fall River. And it's a fascinating work. Check out their website, uh, they have two websites, actually. It's lizzieborden.org as well as lizzieborden.parallellives.com. Both are linked up on the front page at spookysouthcoast.com as well. So stay tuned. We'll be coming back in just a few minutes with more here on Spooky South Coast. Calling sup. Technology. Hey, welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin, sorry, science advisor Matt Moniz. By the time Costa gets back, yeah. I'll start getting it right. But uh, we are here to talk about the paranormal usually, but tonight we're going to talk about the true history of Lizzie Borden and her Fall River with our guests Michael Martins and Dennis A. Bennett of the Fall River Historical Society. They're also the authors of Parallel Lives, A Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and Her Fall River. Uh, they had a previous work, The Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Lizzie A. Borden, The Knowlton Papers, 1892 to 1893, a volume of unpublished letters and documents from the files of prosecuting attorney Hosea M. Knowlton and was unprecedented, being the first collection of primary source documents ever made available on that case. Both are recognized authorities on the Borden case and have appeared in numerous televised interviews and documentary films on the subject, and we're excited to finally get them here on Spooky South Coast after all these years. I think I just dropped Dennis. Oh. <laughs> Let's see if we can get him on the air, too. There we are. <laughs> Michael, are you with us? I am. How are you, right. Tim? We're doing fine, except for the fact that our producer's on vacation. So uh, I'm handling everything. Gotcha. <laughs> so, a one-man show. Hmm? Well, two-man, well, but Moniz, <laughs> two is, man show. Moniz yeah. is no help. 
There you go. There you go. Hopefully uh, we can get Dennis to call back in on that line. Uh, but we will talk to you for a few minutes, Michael, while we're waiting for that. And the book, we talked about this uh, a while ago. I, I remember we first started discussing it here on the show. This is something that's been in the, work, in the works for a number of years. Well, nearly a, nearly a decade, actually. It, it was a long project that we started just about nine years ago. And um, the book was actually published in late November of uh, last year. And when you started putting it all together originally, did you think that it would take a much shorter time period than that? Or? Well, you know, it's funny. We have a prototype of what we originally conceived, and it was considerably smaller than the, than the finished work, which is, you know, over 1,100 pages. Um, initially, we were aware of the fact that there was a great deal of material in private collections pertaining to Lizzie's life, but I don't think either Dennis or myself were fully aware of how much material was out there in private collections. And it was amazing, um, the material that people gave us access to. It was really an incredible journey. And when you were, you know, first laying out that outline, I'm, I'm sure that you knew that it would take uh, quite a bit of space and, and uh, quite a bit of uh, prose to be able to tell the story of Lizzie Borden alone, but to incorporate all of Fall River at that time, uh, you're taking what's essentially already a massive research project in one regard, and then adding to it also the time period as well. I can imagine that that probably threw a, a lot of extra work your way as well. Well, it, it really did. But, you know, no one has ever looked at, at Lizzie's life in the past against the backdrop of the city in which she lived her life. And, you know, both Dennis and I felt that it was essential, and, and I think you know, any, anyone that's really done any serious research on the case realizes that it is essential that you have a, a pretty thorough understanding of what Falver was like during her lifetime, in order to understand why things occurred in the manner that they did. And by that, I mean you, you need to have a good sense of what Falver was at the time. Uh, so we tried to tell the story of a woman's life against the backdrop of place and time, and, and I hope we were successful in doing that. I mean, the result was a massive volume, but there's a terrific amount of, of new material on Fall River and on Lizzie's life. It's really the first social history of Fall River, but as Dennis said at one point, it kind of really constitutes the first biography of Lizzie Borden as well. So, so um, I think it, it was an amazing project and um, was really considerably more extensive, I think, than either one of us realized. There's one thing that we found out that was very interesting uh, in the research, and once we started to pull the stories together, is that uh, Fall River, even though it was a, a major industrial uh, city, was also in many ways a very small town. And as we unfolded a lot of the stories that were not the Lizzie Borden stories, uh, a lot of the same characters kept reappearing. And, uh, you know, the, the web got smaller and smaller, and, and all of a sudden, you know, familiar uh, names and, and, uh, and personalities are starting to creep up all over the place. And uh, it's easy to see why a story like that uh, affected so many people in so many ways. Well, well Dennis, Michael mentioned uh, your quote about it being the first true biography of Lizzie Borden, and it's, it's the first one that goes into it without any kind of agenda, it seems. It seems like most of the other books that have been published that try to give a window into Lizzie's life are putting forth some theory as to why the murders happened. And did you have discussions amongst yourselves from the beginning uh, that you were trying to portray her as objectively as possible? Well, I think we were pretty much in agreement from the very start that the intention was not to write a whodunit, uh, or uh, she done it, or she didn't do it. Um, but rather to write the story of a city and a woman. And uh, 
you, of course, you can't tell that without talking about the murders in the trial, but uh, in the thousand pages, I think you'll find that probably about 35 to 40 pages are about the murder in the trial. The rest of it is all about her and the city around her. And and the important thing about you know going into this with that idea is you have to kind of wash away everything else that everybody's ever written. I mean, you, you want to take some of it, but when it comes to the theories about who she was, you, you can't rely on a lot of that stuff. Well, fortunately, we, we had access to a tremendous amount of unpublished material. So really for the first time, Lizzie Borden speaks in her own words. And by that I mean we've published over 40 new letters or cards or notes in her hand. So you have a much truer sense of who she was as a person because we've now found her, found her voice. So because of that, it gives you a, a, a greater picture of who she was as a person. And it gives you a better sense of her thoughts and her fears and her emotions. And, you know, it's interesting. I think some of the most significant letters that were uncovered were letters that she sent to a very close friend that she wrote from her prison cell. So these are letters that she wrote from the Taunton jail. And, you know, at the time, the newspapers portrayed her as this cold, stoic sort of individual who showed absolutely no emotion. You have to remember that these Yankee girls would have been brought up in such a way that they were taught and trained. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not, emotion was not something that you displayed publicly. I mean, that just simply wasn't done. But when you read the letters that were never intended to be published, a completely different character emerges, a woman capable of great emotion, a woman who was on trial for her life and knew it. So um, fortunately, we did have access to a terrific amount of, of material, but you know, really we did have to sort of sort through a lot of, you know, other books and decide, you know, what we could use and what we couldn't. And the intent was to to tell her story, a great portion of it in her own words and the words of others, or con- contemporaries, of course, who knew her. So we, we were able to, I think, portray her um, as a much more factual character than has appeared in some mm-hmm. other writings in the past. Well, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go right ahead, Dave. No, just to add on to that, the, uh, the thing that we did find... Uh, in the research is that, the, as you said, the person that is presented to us that we had to start working with uh, was a person that was not really a, 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 an actual person, but a person that was manufactured. She was manufactured by uh, a public opinion, by, by rumor, gossip, by the press. And uh, the more we researched and the more we uncovered this material that was in her own hand, uh, you know, talking, you know, from her heart, um, it, it was... Uh, totally opposed uh, to the Lizzie Borden that has stood as the legend, uh, quote-unquote. Exactly. The the Lizzie Borden that descended through legend was not the person. So pretty much everything that that we, quote-unquote, knew about Lizzie Borden, the majority of that information was not factual because it was based on supposition and legend and outright lies. Mm -hmm. So so a different character emerges. And and you talked about the... uh you know, the women of the era and how they would have dealt with a situation like Lizzie went through. And that that's important because in this book, you put Lizzie in the context of her times, of her city and of her culture, which is something that too often we're looking at this case with too much of a, a 20th or a 21st century bent. Exactly, exactly. And then that was the intent from the beginning. And really, I think that's one of the reasons it ended up being such a massive work, because there, there were so many different aspects of life at that period that we had to sort of delve into. Um, and it's a simple concept to tell a person's story against the backdrop of the city in which they lived their life. But amazingly, with Lizzie, it had never been done, which is sort of surprising. 
uh, we we do feel like we've kind of created a a folklore uh, a mythological version of Lizzie Borden, and I, I think that people who uh, are on the periphery of the Lizzie Borden story, especially I'm talking about paranormal investigators who have a rudimentary knowledge of the history of it. We've, we've created somebody who is almost like an American folk hero to some degree. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, there's been, you know, women's lib people who have championed her as, you know, coming out of the kitchen, holding an ax and okay, blazing exactly. the trail. And, exactly. you know, there's, there's, there's all these different ways that she's been looked at. Is it strange now that you have a complete idea of who the person was to see so many different aspects of society latch on to different aspects of Lizzie Borden? Well, you know, I, I think I think people have latched on it because you can take so much away from her story and, and from from the case. But in actuality, I don't think she was anything of a trailblazer mm-hmm. um, at all. She was very much a woman of her time and a woman who tried to lead the semblance of a normal life against pretty incredible circumstances. You know, no one knows if Lizzie Borden was innocent or guilty. No one will ever know that. I mean, that's a question that's never a mystery that will never be solved. But you have to wonder what her life was was like after having been accused of such a heinous crime and tried and acquitted. Um, she lived the greater portion of her life under the specter of suspicion, and it could not have been an easy thing. And, and unfortunately, living under that type of a microscope has also done some damage to her character over the years because everything that she is, everything that she's done since has been viewed under the uh, through the lens of an accused murderer. Oh, of course, Tim. I mean, that character has been completely created. The character that has descended through his history is completely fictitious. So many of the things that were accepted facts about Lizzie's life were very simple to dispel because there's absolutely no evidence to document any of them. Mm-hmm. Yet you can document the exact opposite. And she was in one of those positions, too, where you're kind of, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If she decided to not interact with people then they're like, well, she was guilty. Look at how she won't interact with anybody. And then if she exactly. did, they're like, oh, she's guilty. She's trying to make up for it. Exactly. The whole yeah. question about her staying in Fall River, I mean, that, that's exactly the case. It's, it's, if she had stayed in Fall River, uh, if she had left Fall River, I'm sorry, uh, she would have been accused of running away. And if she, yet she stayed, and they treated her, you know, ostracized her, basically. It's interesting because shortly after her death, an interview was given by a very close friend who was not identified, although we suspect it was likely Helen Layton who was a very close friend of hers. And this person said that after Lizzie was acquitted, her first instinct was to leave Fall River because she felt that she would be ostracized, and that her friends encouraged her to stay because they felt that if she left, it would appear that she were running away. It was almost an admission of guilt. This friend went on to say that Lizzie later came to regret the decision of staying, and that the friends who encouraged her also regretted encouraging her to stay. And that says something, I think. But later in her life, she did say that she stayed in Falverford because she hoped that while she lived, the murderer would be found so that she could walk down Main Street and face all the people who had been cutting her all those years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have to wonder. You have to give her a lot of credit for staying. I think that took a lot of guts. Yeah, no matter what, whether guilty or innocent, the, the fact that she did stick around could not have been easy. No. And when you talk about her as being a folklore character, um, it's interesting that before the murders occurred, she was mainly a, a, a non-entity, uh, but for uh, uh, among the people uh, that were in her circle, uh, she was relatively unknown uh, to the community. Um, and it was only after the fact uh, that all of the stories surfaced about things that supposedly she had done uh, prior 
to the murders, that she had uh, stolen jewelry off the corpse of a friend of hers that was dying, she, that she had cut the cat, uh, heads off cats. Uh, all of these things were, you know, whispered from one person to the other, and the story got more gruesome as it, you know, moved from ear to ear. Um, and all of these things just, just became um, part of what you, you call the, the folklore uh, heroine or, or, or character, and uh, it got blown totally out of proportion with no substantiation whatsoever. It's well, the problem, too, is that when something like this happens, and, and I think probably a majority of the people who uh, delve into this case think that she at least had a hand in what, or, or some knowledge of what was going on. So then that becomes the need to try to explain why. And the need for an explanation as to why these murders occurred becomes the Lizzie Borden backstory. Right. And I know it's interesting that you say that because the same woman who was interviewed shortly after Lizzie's death said that in the long relationship that she had with Lizzie, only once did the question of the crime ever come up for discussion. And she said that all Lizzie said was that she had some idea as to what might have happened, but that she herself knew what it was to be falsely accused, so she would never accuse anyone. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. And it shows, too, that uh, there probably could have been, uh, not, not to question the integrity of the Fall River Police Department, but that there might have been other leads and other ways that they could have gone had they not immediately focused so much on Lizzie. Oh, and, you know, let's face it, in 1892, Fall River, the police department, they, they weren't used to things like this happening. Bordens were not murdered in Fall River in such a you know, horrific manner. So um, they were used to dealing with drunks and prostitutes. And when you look at the old police records, that's what you see a lot of. Yes, there were other murders. There were some pretty horrific ones. But, you know, this certainly wasn't the norm. And... It wasn't expected, you know, to have happened, you know, in the Borden house on 2nd Street. So when the first police officers arrived, the first police officer who arrived didn't know what to make of the whole thing, and he basically deputized the first passerby and went back to the police station. So, you know, the thing was sort of um, messed up right from the beginning. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of mistakes made, no doubt. Things would be handled completely differently today. But, of course, we're talking about 1892, and... You know, forensics and such have changed considerably, so. Absolutely. Well, we have a call on the line, and if, if anybody wants to call in and ask a question or, or offer a point during the discussion, the number is 508-996-0500, But we do ask that because we have both Michael and Dennis on the phone, if uh, the callers can just hang up on their own instead of us cutting them off, because if we do, we'll accidentally cut Dennis off, so. And uh, hopefully, Dennis, you have caller ID, so that does happen. You <laughs> no, know uh, unfortunately, I don't, Tim, so <laughs> All right. I'm on my own. All right, hang on here. Let's go to the phones. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Michael Martins and Dennis Bennett. How are you doing? Greetings. Uh, Keith Johnson here. How are you doing, Keith? How are you? Hi, Keith. Hi, gentlemen. Doing well. Um, very interesting topic. Uh, always been close to me because, as Tim knows, my grandfather lived uh, right in the neighborhood of Lizzie Borden at the time, and um, certainly remember the aftermath. And uh, I have family buried in Oak Grove Cemetery right next to the Bordens on my mother's side. So, um, you know, it's always been a story that's very, very close to my family. And uh, I think an interesting note uh, that you're bringing up is that she was uh, very much a woman of her time and very much, uh, you know, not in the public eye. And this was just totally, totally overwhelming for her. How could she possibly be prepared for all the, the publicity? And um, it was said that she showed 
very little emotion during her trial, and I find that not surprising at all because uh, I think she was just just totally, totally overwhelmed. I mean, the the two times that she showed emotion were, uh, of course, when uh, Andrew Borden's skull was produced and she became very faint, and uh, also when she was acquitted, uh, she broke down sobbing. But um, otherwise, I mean, just just a totally overwhelming situation for her. It's interesting, Keith, uh, about the not showing any emotion, because something did come out in testimony as well. Uh, her doctor, uh, Dr. Bowen, that lived across the street, had been administering her a sedative as of the, d- uh, the day of the murders. He was giving her bromocaffeine, but when that wasn't strong enough, he increased the medication to a, a de- de- derivative of, of morphine. And uh, she was given that on a daily basis, and when he testified at the trial and was asked about the medication, uh, and the attorney asked him when they had stopped giving her that medication, the answer was that he hadn't, that he was still giving it to her. And that was 10 months later. Uh, so uh, that could very well uh, have contributed to uh, her lack of emotion in public as well as as just her, the character and the, t- the type of person that she was brought up to be as, as women were at that period. But certainly, if, if you That's read the letters well, that she wrote good. from prison, you'll, I think, have a very good sense of the type of person that she was and, and, and certainly was capable of, of great emotion. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm looking forward to reading your book very much. It's, right. uh, it's interesting that uh, on the day of the murders, the uh, Fall River police were at their annual outing at Rocky Point in Warwick, Rhode Island, exactly. Rocky Point Amusement Park, which yes. is, um, I'm as I'm talking, I live only, like, um, Sand, my wife Sandra and I live only three blocks from Rocky Point, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's where they were the day of the murder, so somebody... They were at their annual clam bake. Yes, yeah, so exactly. You could just picture the police coming back and uh, saying to their wives, did I miss anything today? And <laughs> Well, they had their full of chowder and clam cakes anyway. Yes, right, the chowder and clam cakes. <laughs> no, no, tell me, what what did your family say? Did, did, did they know her at all? Did they did they know Lizzie? They, they did not know her, and my grandfather, um, who passed away at age 93, uh, he, he never met her personally, and he was only five years old at the time, about five years old at the time of the murders, but um, he certainly remembered the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, he had the story of the... Uh, the grocery boy who came to Maplecroft to deliver uh, a pickle barrel, and they had nothing to open it with. And uh, this is a local urban legend. And yeah, uh, yeah. Lizzie said she was going to go get the uh, get the axe to open it with. And she comes back. The guy's halfway down the street holding onto his hat. Exactly. You know, you know, there are several versions of that story, and, right. um, none of which you can actually document. But what we have been able to document are the very close relationships that she had with a number of people who did make deliveries to her house. Um, there were a number of tradespeople that she was comfortable with. Um, we know that, in, in fact, she often would select certain individuals from, from certain companies to either make deliveries or, or, or go up to the house. And she maintained very close relationships with many of these people, or if they weren't particularly close, they were at least um, very thoughtful relationships on her part. And we've been able to document several of those in parallel lives. There was a man who delivered coal, and it's, uh, I think this is a great story. Uh, and when he would uh, go into her cellar, she would always uh, make sure that there was a pitcher of milk and some chocolate cake on the stairs uh, so that he could have a little treat while he was uh, doing his work. 
And then she'd put a tip inside a little pigskin wallet, and she would throw it down the stairs to him so that he would have uh, a tip for his, his trouble. And that happened consistently every delivery he made for a number of years. That's, that's interesting, and, and she certainly had, had her good points. I mean, she was a Sunday school teacher, too, and, uh, you know, which a lot of people don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, she, you know, she was a woman who had been very religious earlier in her life, and ultimately when, when she was shunned at the Central Congregational Church, she became, a, a, I think, a more spiritual person. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, when you read her funeral instructions, it's very clear that she believed in an afterlife, and there was no doubt in her mind where she was going, and she was eager to get there. She, she wasn't a woman who feared death, and um, she certainly believed that she was going to meet her maker and, and was eager to do so. So that, that is also a, 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 that's interesting. a point about her life that's kind of intriguing. Yeah. I'm wondering if there are any uh, known recordings of her voice, her speaking voice. You know, several people have asked that, and we, we can't answer that. If they exist, we don't know about them. Um, certainly, you know, we've had access to a terrific amount of material, both published and unpublished, and, you know, we're still hearing about things in private collections, which is fascinating. But several people have, have asked about either film or recordings of her voice, and um, if they exist, we've not heard about them. And it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, fortunately, I started here years ago. I was just a kid and, and got to know several people who, who knew her, and the strange thing is it never occurred to me, for whatever reason, to ask them what she sounded like. So I, I never thought of asking that. So um, who, who knows, though? They may be out there somewhere. Michael and I had the good fortune to meet with the last person that we know of uh, that was alive during Lizzie's lifetime and knew her. Uh, she was a very close friend of... Uh, Lizzie was a very close friend of uh, this girl's family at the time. And uh, we did ask her about Lizzie's voice. And, and unfortunately, as a young girl, she it was not one of the things that she committed to, to memory, and she really couldn't say anything. But she did have some wonderful memories about uh, going in a car driven by her father with Lizzie out to Gray's Ice Cream in Tiverton and, and uh, just for rides out that way and uh, just nice memories all around. Well, that's, that's truly fascinating. It's a truly fascinating topic, and I very much look forward to reading your book, gentlemen. And, uh, thank you so much. Right, thank you, thank you so much. Enjoy. Okay, Tim, we'll be seeing you on the 21st. Absol- well, you'll be seeing me before. Oh, yes. In your yes. dreams. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Keith. Thanks. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. All right, we have another call here on the line. Again, if you want to call in, my apologies to the chat room. I mistyped it in the chat room. It's one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty, or 508-996-0500 is the other number as well. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Dennis Bennett and Michael Martins. How are you doing? Hi, Tim. It's Faye Musselman. How Hello, are you? Hey, How are you? Great to hear from you. Yeah, and it's great to hear the guys on the radio. Okay, how are you? Hi, Michael. Hi. How you doing? Yeah. How you doing? I'm doing great. Listen, I called in because um, I just came across something recently that's not mentioned in your book. You might be aware of uh, in Masterpieces of Murder by Gerald Gross. He deals with the Edmund Pearson Radin uh, controversy. But anyway, he puts forth his theory that it was Bridget helping Lizzie and that the hatchet was actually hidden in the um, uh, water receptor in Bridget's room. Yes. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I've never um, 
researched when that was put into the house at the time it was built or subsequent to 1893 or when. Uh, but I thought it was an interesting theory. And since so many authors take information subsequent from one book to another and regurgitate it, nothing was mentioned about that theory of that uh, water retainer or whatever the heck you call it. You know what I'm speaking of. Right, right. Now, Have was you it, ever was come it... across any information relating to that? No, not not really. And, and I'm wondering, the, 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 was it a cistern that collected rainwater, or was it for city water? Do you know? No. And the, the way they built houses back then, what they had to do is that the water got pumped up to it. It fed water upstairs. Right. It's right, like there's one in this building, yes. Yes, and so saving uh, the labor effort of going up and down the stairs a little bit—is that the idea? Yes, right. Because uh, in in, uh, in this building, there is a tank up in the up in the loft, and from a well in the basement, every day a man would come in and pump up by hand two hundred gallons of well water up to the loft. One hundred gallons were heated by gas, and there was a gravity-fed system. Yeah. So they had hot and cold running water in this particular house yeah. back in the eighteen seventies. Well. So perhaps they had a similar version in that house. Interesting. I, I wonder if that tank is still up there. It is. It is. It mm-hmm. is. Okay. And it hasn't been used for decades, I'm sure. Yep. But, you know, the police uh, testified about every nook and cranny was was uh, searched, and yet that specifically is not mentioned. Interesting. Uh, and you don't so, hear about it in... But, but what I find even more interesting is that everybody um, debates whatever happened to the missing alleged murder weapon, and that never comes up. No, and you know, I've always I've wondered. It is in this book by Gerald Gross. Huh. Um, with, with the anyway, weapon. I do want to say to your listeners um, that have not uh, read or purchased Parallel Lives, if you're interested in the history of Fall River or the Lizzie case in general, it's a must-have. For me, and I've said this to you guys uh, personally, it put the cherry on top of the cake. I mean, once <laughs> I read that book, cover to cover, and I've read it like four times cover to cover now. Wow. It's done it for me. I'm, I'm like done. I'm. Um, <laughs> I've always wanted to know Lizzie as a three-dimensional being. Who was this woman? I want to feel like I can touch her, know her. And the book did that. The book did that for me, and uh, put a lot of questions I had in my mind uh, to rest because it was packaged in the context of her society, and it made so much sense to me. Ah, that's why. Oh, yeah, I can see that now. Kind of thing. I think you guys did a, a magnificent job. And, well, uh, thank you for that. Thanks so that much. That effort will not be repeated in my lifetime or if ever, but <laughs> I encourage everybody to get the book. Absolutely, and you can get it from the Fall River Historical Society's website, lizzieborden.org, or from the website lizzieborden.parallellives.com. We're coming up on the news break here, so we're sorry to have to say goodbye to you, Faye, but hopefully you can uh, talk to us again real soon. Thank you. I'm Take care, Faye. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Bye. Faye. Bye-bye. That, of course, is Faye Musselman, who we've had on the show a few times in the yeah. past, and, and just a, a great woman, and we were glad we could get her in there on a ghost hunt, which was uh, pretty interesting. Next, we've got to get Michael and Dennis in there for one. Sure. <laughs> All right, we are coming up on the news, though, guys. When we come back in the second hour, I do want to talk uh, more about the Borden family and the extended family, the immediate family, and... Uh, 
kind of like a little bit of a, a Lizzie Borden fact or fiction to some degree about some of the stories that we've heard over the years. Right, that'll be sounds good. All right. So that'll be coming up in just a few minutes after the news. Uh, it is going to be a brief break of just a few minutes. When we come back, too, we'll also take your calls at 508 996 500 one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty, and you can also email us spooky crew at spooky You can also jump in the chat room on spooky TV at spooky where you can see our in studio cameras and you can interact with some of the other listeners of the show. Always a great conversation going on, and they're sometimes related to the topic, sometimes not. Sometimes uh, y- there's things in there that we can't get to and questions that we can't ask, so we encourage the chat room participants to call in as well. Again, five zero eight nine nine six zero five. 1-877-996-1420. We'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. All right, welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with science advisor Matt Moniz, the silent assassin. Matt Costa is out and about traveling the world, seeing the world experiencing the world <laughs> and uh, we wish him luck if he's listening uh have fun on your journey he's uh he's definitely been seeing some landmarks out there yeah he has hasn't he and uh you know i wish i had known all the places he was going because there's probably spooky south coast listeners we could have hooked him up with out there who could have given him kind of an inside tour of some of these places so i'm just waiting for uh for him to write back and be like oh I've, i got a chance to go on the queen mary <laughs> you know i missed it when i was out there so, uh, but of course, we're having fun back here. And, and were you impressed, Moniz? I actually was able to segue into the news and, and come yeah, back from the show without good. messing up too bad. So, but we still have a whole hour's worth of show that I could screw up royally. So, plenty of time. But let's get back into the discussion about Lizzie Borden with our guests, Michael Martins and Dennis Burnett. Sorry, Moniz, you're going to say? Oh, we've got people want to make sure that if he is going out to haunted places, make sure he's not doing any bloodletting. Well, I don't think he can help it. I think that's just part of his own religious beliefs. We can't stop him. But uh, we are talking about Lizzie Borden with our guests, Michael Martins and Dennis A. Bennett. They are the curators of the Fall River Historical Society, and they're the authors of the book Parallel Lives, A Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and Her Fall River. And uh, and the phone's ringing again, guys, so let's take this call. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Michael Martins and Dennis Bennett. How are you doing? Good. How are you? We are spooktacular, as we say here. Good. I was calling to see if I could get on. I have a uh, I have an uncle who said he killed the Bordens. A great uncle. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Guys, I'll let you take this. Uh. <laughs> now, now, tell me, when was your uncle born? Great well, uncle. First off, as they say in sports radio, first time, long time. Well, and thank go, you for go that. Go Bruins. Thank you. <laughs> uh, what was the question? I apologize. No, no. no. Your, your uncle lived in. Your great uncle lived in Fall River. I lived in Providence. In Providence. And, yeah. And he when was, was born, he born in? Uh, According to my dad, he was born in 1870, mm-hmm. and I believe the murder took place in like the 1890s or something. 1892, so he would have been about 22 at the time. Okay. 
No, I'm older. I, I'm 62 myself in, in mm-hmm. a couple months. So I remember this guy, you know, my uncle, he actually lived to 98. He died in the late 60s, 1968. So for the first, you know, the formative years of my life, I remember this guy. And he was, uh, you know, by this time, he was a, he was in kind of in bad shape. Okay, so everything I say here we can take with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, we really believe this guy, and we really think that he was either involved in the murders or was, uh, you know, he just had so much hate in him, we think he really could have been capable of this. Now, what, what was his connection to the family, the Borden family? Well, he, now again, this is all according to my father, he was dating a, a woman who worked at the inn, uh, and what, Bianca what, Sullivan or something. What, Sullivan. In, what inn is this? Well, this is this is the uh, you know, the hotel there or whatever. The hotel in Fall River, or well, the house. He's you know, in oh, the oh house. I see. Okay, worked at the at the at the at the the, the, the Borden residence. Yeah, I think it's a hotel now. Am I? Am it's I it's right? a B and B now. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay. okay so yeah, it. he he dated a a Sullivan woman. And, right, the, uh, the family's uh, domestic was was a woman by the name of Bridget Sullivan or Bridget Sullivan. Okay. Well, there you go. And and you know, rumors are that this he even. That the there was a Sullivan who fathered one of my dad, or rather, who, who who mothered one of my father's cousins. So we've always said maybe that somehow, you know, there's actually still blood in the family from this, you know, from the time of the murders, which is pretty extraordinary. If you now, think what about did it. what did the family say about his 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 reason for taking out the two Bordens? Well, now by the time I knew this guy, right, this is again in like the '60s. He had had his gallbladder out. Uh, he was a paraplegic. He was a diabetic, so he'd gone blind. He lost a foot. Um, he suffered from neuralgia, neuritis. So again, no, we think it was a great assault. He was crimes. he was sort of rickety at this point. But apparently, this guy he was such a. Whenever he would stay at somebody's house, right? Apparently, he stayed at the at the Borden residence. You know, he was dating the the maid, whatever. I, I shouldn't say stay. He would go pick her up there. I guess at the you know. I guess she got off at 5 o'clock or something. He, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I'm taking guesses here. But he was dating this woman, and he would often pick her up at the residence to take her out, you know, to squire her about town in Fall River. Now, from what I remember from this guy, we once took a trip with him to Bush Gardens back in the 60s. Uh, we took an RV from Connecticut. Um, you know, he came from Providence. And this every hotel we stopped at was either something was wrong with the plumbing or the, the continental breakfast wasn't up to snuff or the showers. You know, the water smelled like rust, or the maid didn't do a good job. So we think that if he was mistreated in any sort of way, and he would just get a murderous look in his eye. And this is about the time when my father would say he'd start complaining in the RV, and we'd sort of try to, you know, get him going a little bit. We were just kids. My dad would say, no, easy, guys. Interesting. He was a quick quick temper is what you're saying. Well, it was almost a slow temper. He really would work up to it, but once he got in gear... I mean, this guy would see red and forget about it. He, you know, he he hit us a couple times. So you feel he was slighted by the Bordens? Well, that's what my that's what my father and my uncles always said is that, you know, they always said he was dating this woman. She she gassed him up. Um, you know, apparently he was mistreated by them, and then they say, and he would say, according to my father back in my, you know, my dad was born years ago, back in the 1920s, he would tell stories about how he killed the Bordens when he was a. 20-some-odd-year-old back in Fall River. I mean, we can never believe it, but, you know, in a lot of ways it adds up. He was well, an angry fella. My, Michael and Dennis, uh, you know, the, the rumors are that Andrew Borden wasn't kind to Bridget either. Oh, well, well right. you know. <laughs> well, that would really set him off. Now, there was one time in the way 
on one of our vacations, he again, he died when he was about 98. Now, in his 70s, he was still a good-looking guy, full head of hair. Uh, you know, he didn't have a foot, and he was in a wheelchair. But, he, could, mm-hmm. you know, he would flirt, and he would do pretty well. He, he actually got a woman, believe it or not, back to our hotel. And all my dad and his brothers, of which there were seven, were all very angry because there was kids in the room. We had, like, a suite, you know, so we had all the space. And he was trying to sort of, you know, in the parlance of his day, make time with this woman. And my dad and his brothers threw the woman out, and he just went absolutely crazy. I mean, he couldn't do much. He was, at this point, he was incapacitated. Sure, but it sounds like he could have been a logical uh, candidate. Oh, he was screaming up and down. You would have thought that we had uh, smacked the Virgin Mary herself. Really? Well, I he mean, couldn't he do was, much, but at least he made the attempt. So, well, you, well, it was scary. I'll be honest. I look back, and it was sort of a scary moment of my youth. I mean, I can still envision the moment. But he really had a quick, again, as you said, uh, Mr. Weisberg, he had a temper that would be, you know, murderous. I don't know how else to put it. And, again, this was from his own mouth. He claimed that he had killed these people. I just think because he was so far removed, and none of us even believed that the Bordens ever existed, to be honest with you. I stood, I'm not even sure about it. Mm-hmm. But did, we, uh, did, did he ever say how he managed to, to murder them, let's say, roughly about two hours apart and then escape undetected? Did he, did he ever say anything about that, about the actual event and how it occurred? There were never details. Now, again, we didn't... My, my father and his brothers believed it, me and my brothers and sisters. We never did believe it, and we would often... I mean, I hate to say, even on his deathbed, we were really making fun of him for this, and my mm-hmm. sister always thinks she killed him <clears throat> because we, uh, cause of the grief we gave him. But I uh, know he never went into detail. Well, you know, it sounds like he gave a lot of grief back, so I wouldn't be too concerned about it. Yeah, but you look back and, you, you know... You know, I'm an older guy now. I'm in my 60s, and you sort of regret you act that way towards your elders. I, I, I wish I was more of an adult at the time, to be completely honest with you. Yeah. But no, ne- never details. I mean, he, he didn't weigh much. He was almost like, you know, like jockey-sized. So I think he could have slipped away undetected simply because he was a slight man. He I mean, was a small man. You know, he... Uh, Fascinating. You know, obviously someone murdered the Bordens, and, right. you know, this is, this is a new, you know, a, a new... A new story that I, that I think you know most people have probably never heard before. So, so yeah, you it, know, we don't tell a lot of people. It's not, uh, you know, I mean, I, I live in Connecticut now, and we're still regional, and so we don't want to sully the Warren name. His name was Edgar Warren, was his name, and uh, we still have the name, so we try not to sully our own good name. Um, but I mean, this guy too, career criminal. He used to fix horse races. He would steal. He was a bicycle thief in the 50s, which is weird. I mean, by then you think he would have graduated to automobiles. But, yeah, uh, one would think because, he, you know, by the sure. 50s. But maybe it was the whole thing because of his, his, the diabetes. He, we always thought he was short. He, we, you know, I'm not sure he could reach the gas pedal. And, again, I sound like I'm making fun of this guy. He, sure. Believe it or not, he was a beloved relative. But, uh, no, never know any details, and I wish I'd gotten more from him. But my goal now is I'm committed to telling his story, and I'm trying to write a book as we speak. I'm trying to get some more information from my surviving relatives. Interesting. That's, that's certainly the best way to go about doing it. I mean, if you can gather any information and try to document whatever you can, and, you know, if you talk to the relatives to find out what he told them as well, and, you know, when you piece that all together, you could probably come up with, with certainly, you know, a, a, a book with family recollections. Are now, there photographs there of this, this, of this gentleman? Because, you, know, you know, I'm trying to turn a buck here, too. If I make a book, is there a market for this? Well, you know, I think I think there are there's a whole group of people who are interested in the Borden story and the Borden case, and because I'll lie if it'll sell more books. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's important to document everything you say. That's that's one yeah. thing that we were you know really 
careful about with, with the book that we just worked on. And everything okay. we say oh, you guys have a book out so, now. Pardon me? You guys have a book out now? Oh, we do, actually. Yeah, oh, very it's good. A, you guys a have a book tour? Of and, and, and a book about Lizzie Borden, yes. I'll tell you, you should do a book tour. I did one of those about 15 years ago. I mean, are you guys married or single? I'm, I'm, I'm single. Golf. Then these tours are a good time. I'm not going to get <laughs> right, too that's, long. That's a good point to end it right there. Yeah, All there right. you go. There you go. Well, thank you very much for calling in. And uh, when, when your stuff uh, comes out, let us know. Keep us up to date. All right. Stay spectacular. All right. Take thanks. Care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, moving on. And uh, so, I mean, but it does sound uh, like, uh, you know, there's probably a number of people I could imagine who, after these murders happened, you know, wouldn't. I don't want to say wouldn't say that they would cop to it and say that they did it, but I'm sure that there was a number of people who uh, had speculation thrust upon them. Well, think about this. It's also one of the things that, you know, somebody would use to threaten somebody to be in, to be an intimidator. Yeah. True. Well, Tim, it's interesting because in the first book that we did, the Knowlton Papers, um, the, the, which was a collection of the uh, personal files of the prosecuting attorney. There were a lot of uh, letters from people that came forward identifying themselves as the murderer of uh, Mr. and Mrs. Borden uh, for whatever reason. None of them uh, claimed any real connection uh, to the family. They were just letters out of the blue. Uh, they never identified themselves, but they, they just uh, said that they, they had done it and they had thrown the hatchet in the river and, 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 and whatever. Uh, but uh, again, just a, just a lot of claims that uh, with um, you know no name or or, uh, or specific details, uh, you know, to back it up. Well, getting back to the to the Bordens themselves, I, I want to talk. We we touched upon a little bit in that phone call about how Andrew Borden treated Bridget Sullivan, the maid, and we've heard all these stories about that he was a, a miserly man, that he was you know he held back. The, the stories go that he held back Lizzie from her dream of living amongst the elite on the hill. Mm-hmm. And how much of this and what you've been able to research turns out to be truth and how much of it turns out to be, you know, the made-up story of trying to find a motive? Well, I think most of it's a made-up story because there's absolutely nothing to base any of that on. Um, first off, you know, in order to justify the deed, it's necessary to create villains. So certainly Andrew Borden and his wife come across as villains. Andrew Borden is a very difficult man. He's very miserly. He deprives his family of, of, of everything. And Abby, of course, is the quintessential, you know, evil stepmother sort of gluttonous sort of woman. In fact, I think that's hardly the case at all. Um, we do know from evidence that we've been able to document that the Borden sisters, in fact, were deprived of very little. They were well-dressed. They were clearly well-fed. They were free to come and go as they pleased. They had funds at their disposal, in addition to an allowance they were given by their father. So their lives really were not, by all appearances, um, much more different from that of many of their contemporaries. In fact, they were living in better conditions than many of their contemporaries. The fact that they didn't socialize with the most prominent families in Fall River is simply because the most prominent families in Fall River didn't know them. Um, Andrew Borden has been made out to have been one of the wealthiest men in the city, which is simply not true. He was an extremely successful businessman, but his estate was somewhere between 250 and 300,000. Fall River at the time was a city of millionaires, so they were on the fringes of local society. Um, often it's been said that you know the doors of the city's most prestigious homes were, were closed to Lizzie. They were slammed in her face. Well, it wasn't necessary to slam doors in her face. They didn't know her, so why 
touch on someone you don't know. You simply don't know them, and there's no reason to know them after the fact. Um, but by all accounts, you know, I think Andrew Borden was true to that heritage of frugality. He was a Yankee, waste not, want not. His sure. fortune was an, a fortune entirely self-made. He had no inherited wealth. But I, I do think that, as I said, it is necessary to create villains. And, and when you look at Andrew Borden, you know, when running water was made available on his block on 2nd Street, he was one of the first men to install running water in that house. The house actually was comfortable. It had a central heating system in 1892. It had a flush toilet in the basement, which was fed by city water. These are things that most people don't know about. So, so actually, I think that the house was much more comfortable than people have been led to believe over the years. The other point, too, Tim, that's very interesting is that um, as far as Bridget Sullivan, the, the domestic, was concerned, he had three adult women living at home, none of them employed, and he still employed a full-time live-in domestic uh, that uh, had duties around the household. And when you look at her testimony at the trial, uh, her duties were relatively light for someone that was employed full-time. I mean, uh, she didn't have any heavy cleaning to do because Mrs. Borden took care of most of it. Uh, Lizzie and Emma took care of their own rooms. And by her own testimony, which I think is, is kind of great, Bridget Sullivan said that she was re required to sweep the front hall of the Borden house, which would be the entrance hall in, in the main part of the house, once every other week. <laughs> so <laughs> her, her duties weren't that difficult, I don't think. Yeah, it sounds like uh, she had it made. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, I had I had to go. <laughs> yeah, with that. you had to use that. <laughs> so, but one of the, one of the other uh, theories that's thrown about too is that uh, the reason why John Morris was visiting had something to do with uh, some sort of business deal or something that was going to cut Lizzie and Emma out of Andrew's money should something happen to him, and that uh, they were actually losing out on the inheritance to their stepmother, Abby. And I can't imagine there's been anything that verifies those claims. No, not at all. You know, Andrew Borden died without a will. And because he died without a will, um, the state law at the time said that the fortune would be left to the, the eldest male issue. Of course, there was none. So um, Emma Borden inherited the estate, which she immediately divided between herself and her sister Lizzie. And it was divided equally. In fact, Emma paid half of all of the court and legal fees um, associated with Lizzie's trial. So, John Morris, I don't really know what he would have stood to inherit. I mean, John Morris was Andrew Borden's first wife's brother, so his brother-in-law by his first wife. Um, he had business dealings in New England, and it was not uncommon for him to sort of show up on occasion and stay for a few days. Um, we do know that, that he, at the time of that last visit with the Bordens, he had had discussed some cattle over at the Borden farm in Swansea and whether he was selling or, or um, purchasing cattle for um, Andrew Borden. I'm not quite sure. I know we, we do have that here somewhere. but um, So that, that there was some business between the two men, but apparently they're on very good terms. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what he would have stood to gain at all, to be perfectly honest. But then it, again, who knows? And uh, this, this is something that I... I I'm torn on the next topic that I want to bring up because it's something that I know as a paranormal investigator when I go into the Borden house. And, and I'll talk to you guys a little bit later on about how much of the paranormal stuff you guys buy into because there was a lot of discussion that's been had about that over the years. Uh, but as an investigator, one of the things that seems to get a quote-unquote rise out of the spirits there when we're there is to talk about the alleged accusations of incest. Yes. And this is something that as far as I know, 
most of it has come up in discussion through psychics that have visited the house, paranormal investigators using their devices, and then the supposed whispers amongst the Fall River community back then. As Faye Musselman told us uh, a few years ago, you know, there was correspondence that kind of alluded to the fact that this might have uh, happened in the past. And is I can't imagine either that that's something that there would be that much record of if it indeed did happen. Right. I'm not familiar with, with any of it, and certainly... Anyone that we've spoken to who, who knew Lizzie or the descendants of anyone who knew Lizzie or, in fact, the people that I spoke to and I knew several who, who knew her quite closely, they all said that she had admiration and respect for her father. Mm-hmm. And very, very rarely do you hear anything disparaging from people who actually knew her. You hear a lot of things from people who didn't know her. Um, and, of course, a lot of it can't be documented. As far as any correspondence, I'm not personally aware of any. But, of course, other people have done research and have, have had you know, access and, and privy to, have been privy to material that we have not seen. So um, I, I really can't comment on that a whole lot. But, but I will say that, and, and I think this is interesting, her, her chauffeur, her last chauffeur, who she was very close to, said that one of the reasons that he was convinced of her innocence was the fact that she spoke so often and so fondly of her father. So um, I think, in fact, the two were probably pretty close. You know, it's interesting, just recently, within a matter of a few weeks, the Historical Society acquired the personal journals of Lizzie's attorney, Andrew Jackson Jennings. These came from his grandson's estate. And they're very fragile. We have not read them yet. We've glanced at them. Um, perhaps you, you heard about that because it, it was uh, pretty big in the media. Yeah, I mean, we were getting people emailing it to us all the time. Like, yeah, yeah, it kind of went viral, which was, which was really interesting. But I can tell you that, that one, of the, one of the quotes there, and actually several of the things there, um, have to do with Andrew Borden's relationship with his daughters. And the picture that is portrayed is very different from what we seem to believe or, or seem to know about, about the relationship that Lizzie had with, with her father. So of course, these were the journals kept by a member of the defense team, so that might have had something to do with it. But um, I think, in fact, the two probably were very close. I personally don't buy into it at all, but that's just my own opinion. And I base that on, on you know, material that, that I've had access to. But I, I, I don't know what Dennis feels about that. He doesn't say it, but, but I, I personally don't buy into it. There's another um, interesting instance that we cover in the book that has to do with her father, and that's her, with her father's grave. Um, there's a whole uh, section with a man by the name of Terrence Lomax, who was the foreman at Oak Grove Cemetery. And um, it's always been said that Lizzie didn't um, visit her father's grave and, and, and stayed away from Oak Grove, but actually that's not true. And uh, we discovered in talking to some people that uh, this Mr. Lomax um, befriended Lizzie and uh, would walk her through the cemetery so that when people, you know, kind of gaped at her and, and wanted to know what her business was, uh, he would just tell her, you know, not to pay any attention to them, and he would escort her to her father's grave, and uh, she could pay her respects and then escort her away. And in the wintertime, she had arrangements where she would call ahead and actually have a path shoveled to uh, the grave uh, down the road from the entrance to the cemetery. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, anytime I look at cemeteries in New England on a snowy winter, uh, you don't see an awful lot of footprints there. You see people waiting until the thaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that says a lot that she actually would uh, would do that. And uh, as Michael mentioned before about her, her um, funeral instructions, 
uh, one thing that she did specify was that she wanted to be buried at her father's feet. And it, it just doesn't fit the pattern of no. of somebody who would have been abused. But then again, uh, you know, it, it is almost, it's that idea of there needs to be a motive. We need to see a reason. Mm-hmm. We need to find a, a reason to have such a heinous thing happen. But then again, at the same time, uh, on a paranormal bent, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that because we get activity as a result of talking about it in the house that that means that that's exactly what happened. It just means that that's what stirs up that activity. Right. So and, right, if, right. and if it was whispered about at the time, I can tell you that I personally never spoke to anyone who had any recollections of anything along those lines. That's that's something that I don't even recall people talking about until you know sometime in the eighties when you know when when those theories started sort of surfacing. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Florence Brigham, you know, who was the curator here for many, many years. It was something that she didn't buy buy into either. I mean, she she had, had thought the whole thing was outlandish. But then again, you know, we weren't there, so it's it's just difficult to say. Well, when we're talking about theories that were put out there and uh, and whether or not we can buy into them, uh, Victoria Lincoln, of course, wrote her book, uh, A Private Disgrace. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in that book, there was the uh, theory put forth uh, that. Lizzie could have been a kleptomaniac, and that she could have had uh, a certain form of epilepsy. Right. And are these anything that has that has come up in your research at all? No. If Lizzie Borden had epilepsy, then she had no documented episodes after August fourth, eighteen ninety-two. And there were people who spent considerable time with her over many, many years, and never documented or never mentioned or wrote about any incidents like that at all. And as far as the kleptomania, you know, you hear lots of stories which can't be documented. Lizzie spent a terrific amount of time shopping. Lizzie loved to shop. And we know that certainly after she came into her inheritance, one of her favorite pastimes was shopping. She shopped in some of the most prestigious stores in New England and certainly in in major cities throughout the country and bought a lot of things. But there were no documented incidents of her stealing anything. Sure. Um, there is a, a, an incident at Tilden Thurber in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Tilden and Thurber was a very high-end jewelry store. I guess you could sort of liken it to a, a maybe a second-rate Tiffany & Company, but very nice nonetheless. And um, they uh, apparently the, the story was that she went into Tilden's and took a pair of porcelain plaques that, that um, she gave as a gift and returned them they were returned later by someone they were given to because one of them was damaged or was going in to be framed or some foolishness. This appeared in a, a rag sheet in Fall River, and um, it was picked up by a couple of newspapers and then dropped very quickly because there was no evidence at all to, to document any of this. So it makes for a great story. You know, it does make for a great story. But if you go out there and try to document it, we certainly haven't been able to, and, and I, I wish anyone luck trying. Well, it- I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's, uh, and again, it's another one of those things where it's like cutting the ha- heads off cats that mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, just snowballs into uh, a larger-than-life kind of thing where all of a sudden uh, that you have tales of her going into McCourt's department store in Fall River and, and like, bagging things, you know, off the shelves into her uh, purse and then having the sales girls just writing down what she's stealing and sending the bills to her father. Now, Quite frankly, I mean, if you look at Andrew Borden's character being the, the parsimonious Yankee um, that he was, I would hardly think that he would tolerate 
getting bills from a chorus saying these are the things that your daughter pinched while she was in here the other day. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's kind of like the the need to vilify her though, and to, yeah. and to turn her into a villain. Yeah, to, to, exactly. Because if she did commit the murders, there has to be a negative reason. It just can't be a crime of the moment, a crime of passion. Uh, right. One of the things that I've always found interesting, too, when, when talking about Lizzie Borden's character or what we think is her character is th- the relationship between herself, her sister Emma, and their stepmother Abby of it being a very cantankerous relationship, a very adversarial relationship. And that's something that I think is, is probably the way that it, it portrayed in your research as well. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because if, if you look at what we can document about their relationship – just as many people who knew them said that the relationship was a very pleasant one, mm-hmm. as did people who said that it wasn't. And, you know, you have to remember that Lizzie was, was only two years old when her mother died, but Emma was 12. And it wasn't until three years after that that, that Mr. Borden remarried. So Lizzie said that instinctively she always went to her sister Emma as a mother figure because Emma was always there for her. And Emma had promised, apparently, at her mother's deathbed to always take care of baby Lizzie. But, you know, Lizzie called Abby mother until shortly before the murders. Uh, Emma always called her Mrs. Borden. So the only mother that, that Lizzie ever knew was Abby Borden. So, you know, it, it's really difficult to say. Unfortunately, no correspondence between the family members survives. If it does survive, we have not seen it. It hasn't surfaced yet, to the best of our knowledge. So um, it's really difficult to get a good sense of what family life was like in that house without any written documents to to prove any of it. Now, we did have access to diaries, and these diaries were kept by um, a contemporary of of Lizzie's. Her name was Louisa Holmes Stilwell, but they called her Luli. And Luli wrote in her diaries um, about Lizzie when Lizzie was 14, 15, 16 years old. So these are the earliest references and the first insight we have into Lizzie's childhood. And really, other than the fact that, you know, she might have been gloomy on particular days, um, she doesn't appear to have had a childhood much different than most of her contemporaries. As far as uh, life in the boarding house between Lizzie and Emma, you you get snippets of it when you you listen to or, or you read the testimony. Um, where Lizzie says that the relationship was cordial, and then the uh, attorney is trying to get her to define what cordial means. Uh, then in another instance, she uh, talks about uh, her stepmother asking her to help her uh, fixing a dress, and she agrees to and says that she you know, would help her do that. Um, so there are little instances here where, you know, just little kind of scenes of everyday life. Uh, for one of uh, another uh, thing to call them, and it, I mean that's all you have. I mean there are the times where she would be referred to. Mrs. Borden would be referred to as uh, her mother, and then she would say, "She's not my mother; she's my stepmother." Um, if you don't hear someone saying that and you read it, you can put whatever tone you want on it. it you know what I mean? It's it, it's it could you could be adamant, or you could just be correcting someone. You know, it's. So it's it's really hard to tell. I think the natural inclination for people, maybe these days, not I don't know how much it would have been in those days, but at least in today's society, you know, you kind of expect there to be some sort of a, a negative relationship between uh, a child and a step parent. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of how it's been portrayed with a media bias in in 
you know, books, right. films, movies, TV. And of course, in those days, yeah, exactly. where, where mortality rate was very high, and women would would it was not uncommon for women to die in childbirth. You often find instances of men who had multiple wives. In some cases, you know, your wife would die. So who would be the best um, stepmother for your children and their own aunt? So you, the man would simply marry his wife's unmarried sister. We know of one former gentleman who did that three times. So, so it was not uncommon for um, many women at the time or many people at the time to have step-parents because so many women did die in childbirth. So um, how, how well they all got along, you know, we, we, don't, we don't know that. And there's no way of knowing that, but, but it's, it's easy to look at the little snippets of information we have and make the life in that house a very, a very tense one in order to create an atmosphere where an event like this could occur. Well, one of the interesting aspects about when we're talking about this case, we're talking about what rumors have been spread around, what stories have been handed down, and and the descendants of people that you've been able to talk to is the idea of how Fall River was at the time. You know, a lot of cities, you know, they had their, their... rich section, they had their poor section, they had their middle class section. With Fall River at the time, it was kind of a different type of a setup because you had the elite living on the hill and kind of lording over and looking over the people who were the ones that were breaking their backs in the factories to supply for those people. I can imagine that that probably created a strange dynamic in the city at the time. Oh, it definitely did. I mean, Fall River was an extremely wealthy, extremely powerful city, but that wealth created terrific, and I think in many ways horrific, poverty. And, and you're right. I mean, you had a group of families living up here on the hill that were sort of lording over everything. And um, I think the majority of them viewed the workforce, primarily you know, immig- immigrant laborers, as a disposable commodity. They're, they probably felt that, and I won't even say probably, I'm sure the majority of them did feel that, that you know, Europe was full of people who were coming over here in huge numbers and looking for jobs, and they didn't give them a whole lot of thought, which was really unfortunate because it did create terrific strife in Fall River. We were a very strike-torn city, and there was a lot of animosity, there's no doubt, between the, the people who had and the people who had not. And unfortunately, in Fall River, you had a lot more people who had nothing and a few people who had plenty. Um, in the Second Street neighborhood where the Borden family was living, you had a different sort of group of people. It was not far from the area that was called Corky Row, which is where you had a lot of um, Irish Catholics that had settled. Um, a lot of them um, had come over from County Cork in Ireland, which is why that area was called Corky Row. And, but, but right in the vicinity of the Borden House, you had um, physicians, and you had some business people, and you had widows, and you had some people living in genteel poverty, and, and some wealthy people as well. So in that immediate neighborhood, there was a great mix. But, but certainly the wealthiest people at the time were living up here in the hill, which is ultimately where Lizzie and Emma settled. Yeah. Well, next door was the uh, former mayor's daughter. Uh, so that had been the mayor's house at one time. And it, it, I think and another interesting thing about Fall River is the proximity of the neighborhoods. Um, it, it was it, There were uh, very bad mill housing neighborhoods that uh, had horrible living conditions that were uh, just a few blocks walk from the, uh, hit, the, the, the houses at the lower part of the hill. So you had neighborhoods that were very close to each other. Um, as far as the Bordens, Michael was saying that the uh, Borden neighborhood with the physicians and, and whatever um, living there, 
um, as well as business people and uh, one of the city's leading architects right across the street. Um, there were other people in other parts of the city that chose to live not on the hill. Um, Mrs. Young, for one, who was uh, BMC Durfee's mother, BMC Durfee being who the high school was named for, Mrs. Young was one of the wealthiest people in the city, and she lived close to the downtown area as well on North Main Street. She didn't live on the hill. Uh, so there were other people that uh, lived closer to the business district because of its convenience or because they were established there, and it just didn't make sense to move at that point in their lives. It wasn't an issue as to whether uh, they wanted to live in the most prestigious place. They were living where they were comfortable. You know? But, I mean, how much of the fact that you know you had this rubbing up against each other of the two different classes – I mean, how would that have impacted Lizzie in her daily life? I don't think it did at all, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think that women in Lizzie's set and, and the, the, the women that she would have known would have been primarily a, her friends were a group of maiden ladies, school teachers, um, or daughters of prominent men. And they had comfortable lives. They did church work and they traveled and they shopped but i don't think that they gave a terrific amount of thought to the working conditions of the the, the, the labor force in fall river it, it it didn't concern them it wasn't something that they were involved in and i think they simply blocked it out um so so i i, I don't know that 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 it had much impact on her life i mean her livelihood of course ultimately came from investments in mill stock and um i think that you know, if there was a strike and, and dividends went down, she was affected and concerned like everybody else. I will say, however, that, that we know that later in her life she was very close to and very good to people who worked for her. She was a woman who was able to cross class barriers. I think that ultimately in her life she took people at face value. If you were good to her, she was good to you. And um, I think a lot of that stemmed from the fact that she had been ostracized by many people. Now, when we look back at the, uh, you know, the way that the story has been told over the years, I think that so much of, uh, again, we we talked about the Victoria Lincoln book, and if you want to look at the Elizabeth Montgomery movie, you know, these these are the the ways that Lizzie Borden has been shaped in people's minds, mm-hmm. and in in that shape, you're seeing somebody who could very well have been capable of committing these murders. Of course, the Lizzie Borden that you've discovered in your research. Do you conclude that she is somebody that could have had a hand in, in these brutal murders? Well, I think anyone's capable of murder. I think there's no question that, it, and I think it's obviously been proven that everyone's capable of murder. Um, but it's it's difficult when you look at her life and the consistencies in, in her life. A woman who was so meticulous, a woman who couldn't bear to see anyone ill, she couldn't bear to see any suffering, a woman who couldn't bear to see anything in disarray consistently throughout her life, a woman who had been very religious and ultimately very spiritual, you have to wonder, did she just one day snap and have a particularly bad day? And if she did, how did she manage to disguise all means of death, all evidence of that death on her own person? Mr. Borden, when his body was found, blood was still flowing from his wounds. He had just recently been murdered, yet it did not appear that her clothing was in disarray. There was no blood in her person. Um, Apparently her hands were immaculately white words of one observer. So you have to wonder how she would have been capable of committing such a heinous crime and disguising the means of that crime in, in such a short period of time if 
she had someone else involved, if there was someone who actually committed the crime for her, and then then you're talking about, you know, obviously something premeditated and a conspiracy, and again, it, it does not seem that, that she was the type of person who was capable of, of something like that. However, stranger things have happened. I mean, mm-hmm. no one knows that, and I, I really firmly believe no one ever will. The intention of the book wasn't to exonerate her. Uh, what we wanted to do when we started out and what we ended up accomplishing is that we wanted to present a life of her, uh, her life, um, as one that you could document. We wanted to present to Lizzie Borden that, you, that we could actually take tangible evidence and say this is fact. This is what she was like in this instance. These are her character traits and whatever. And to uh, to paint her picture from as young an age as we could, and we did manage to get some um, some things from her youth uh, through the end of her life, and then tell that story against the backdrop of the city. Um, it's a, a very interesting. I think that that we managed to find so much documentation for the Lizzie Borden that no one knew existed before. Um, no one ever anticipated that, that there was would be this, this kind, loving, benevolent, generous woman whose heart would go out to people um, that that were, you know, a part of her, her social circle or her family network, because she did create a family for herself after her acquittal, um, a family that was very loyal to her and, and actually whose descendants are very loyal to her to this day. You know, it's, it's interesting because when we were doing this research, the material was, was gleaned from private collections all over the world. So Asia and South America and Canada and, of course, the United States and, and, and Europe. And so, so it was really amazing, the material that we uncovered. The fascinating thing was that we were getting the same stories about the same incidents from people all over the world. Wow. who didn't know each other. And they were all telling us the same things, and they had the evidence and photographs to prove it. You know, you can't make that up. You, you cannot get that number of people to make up the same story about the same incident that occurred in the same year. It simply doesn't happen. They couldn't even pull that off with the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> no, you really couldn't. So <laughs> it was interesting. I mean, and, and then these people had the material to back it up. They either had the recollections of their relations or diaries or letters or photographs or, you know, so the stories, it all pieced together. It fit together, and it just made too much sense. And I'll be perfectly honest. Some of these really outlandish stories, we tried to document. We went out there looking for some disparaging stuff. You can't find it. You simply cannot find it. So, you know, was she, you know, this this absolutely wonderful person who never did anything that was, you know, by, might might be considered, you know, an evil deed? I don't think so. I think, you know, everyone does things that perhaps aren't really nice sometimes. But I think that she tried to live the semblance of a normal life, and and you know, those those records are now being uncovered. The people who gave us access to this material, and this is fascinating, they are the descendants of some of her closest friends and associates. Over eighty years after her death. They're still protecting her. They're protecting a woman they never knew. Mm-hmm. Now, the items they have historically are very valuable, but intrinsically they're extremely valuable. They've never tried to, um, to use a crude term, cash in on any of the material that they have. They've never made the material public. They've never used it to generate any kind of income. They simply keep this tradition of respect um, in their families, and it, and it descends through the generations. And 
really was it was amazing to us to 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 work with these people and a great privilege to get to know these people and you know this project went on you know as we, as we said earlier for nearly a decade and so we built some very close relationships with with some of these people this sort of research doesn't happen overnight and it was interesting i think one of the reasons that they came forward was the fact that no one was was capitalizing on this no one was going to make any money on this the book is was written by Dennis and I but but it it belongs to the historical society so if any money is made on it it will go to the historical society so no one's going to benefit privately um and i think they they liked the idea of that and in many ways i think they thought the time had come to try to set the record straight some of these people had been contacted in the past by other authors but they didn't like the way they were approached. Oh, they were probably approached with an agenda. Yeah, yeah. An agenda, and we it, definitely tried not to have an agenda. And their hesitancy, I mean, they could they could cite examples of, of times that they had been approached and why they decided that they uh, didn't want to, you know, release any information outside of, you know, just a, a quick... And then they don't forget. When they're approached, they document it. So they, yeah. they know who approached them and when, and they can, can go back, you know, in some cases to the 1930s when they were approached by authors so, or, or researchers. You know, so, so it's a, it, it, the Lizzie Borden game is a difficult one mm-hmm. uh, because you're dealing with a horrific crime that has been you know, sensationalized to outlandish proportions. And um, you know, she was tried and she was acquitted, and there was a life there. And the life itself is what, what, is, what is so fascinating. Well, we have uh, about uh, seven or eight minutes left in the show, so if you have any questions that you'd like to ask our guests, Michael Martins and Dennis A. Bennett, the authors of Parallel Lives, A Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and Her Fall River, you can just give us a call, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. And one question that I do want to ask you guys, and, and we talked about this a little bit uh, during my visit there when I was uh, promoting my book, Ghosts of the South Coast, but... One thing I've always wanted to find out more about is, is your take on the paranormal Lizzie, the fact that Lizzie Borden has become one of America's biggest ghost stories. Uh, and I'm sure that that's something that, being at the Fall River Historical Society all the time, it probably does come up from some of the visitors. Oh, oh it certainly does. And we do get you know, telephone calls from lots of production companies and, and lots of people. And um, what's so interesting to me about this whole thing is that I've had the, the good fortune of knowing the descendants of people who lived in that house going back to the 19-teens and 20s. Mm-hmm. And it always intrigued me that none of these people ever experienced anything out of the ordinary at all. Well, did you ask, or did they just not tell you? Oh, oh no. They, they, they personally have said that, you know, and the descendants have said that these, these are stories that w- were something that they never heard about discussed in the family mm-hmm. people could remember being in the in the house and never experienced anything so so i think it's something that's that's um considerably more recent perhaps and um maybe it's because people now are, are more in tune to that sort of thing i personally don't know um but it, but it's interesting nonetheless i i think it's a fascinating take on the whole thing well, I mean, my opinion is that the paranormal doesn't happen unless there's somebody there to experience it. Mm-hmm. And I think with all these people going in there and looking for a paranormal experience, that's why it's kind of come out of the woodwork, so to speak. Right. It's interesting to me. I know I heard recently that, that there are some children haunting the place, and these are supposed to be the kids who were murdered in the house next door. Mm-hmm. 
and my take on that has always been, why don't they haunt the house they were murdered in? I mean, why would they have to go to the house next door? <laughs> um, so I've never quite understood that one. But it's interesting. You know, it, I, think, I think the whole thing is interesting. It's fascinating. And um, who's, who's to say? So uh, have either of you gone there and, and tried to have a, a paranormal experience? Or, and the second follow-up to that question is, would you like to? Oh, it wouldn't interest me in the least, no. Okay. Not, not, not particularly. And um, I can, can, can tell you, I've spent the majority of my life in you know, big old houses and, and have never experienced anything. But, but maybe I just, because it doesn't particularly interest me, maybe I just block it out. I don't know. Um, but I... I I, I, you know, I hope that if, if Lizzie's, you know, out there, I, I, I think, you know, hopefully she's happy doing whatever it is she's doing at the moment. And, and I'll say this. If there ever was a place where there would be a ghost, it would be the Fall River Historical Society because there's so many great objects there. There's so <laughs> there's much some great awesome stuff. stuff to see. Yeah, there's some great stuff. And, um, you know, it, it's an, an interesting collection, and I've spent a lot of time here. But it's, it's just it's something that, that I personally have, have, have never, never experienced. So, but for so the I, amount of time that we spend in this building over the years, <laughs> and this is years and years and years and years, if there's a ghost here, I would think we would have seen it by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if I ever do bump into Lizzie, I, you know, I, I hope she's pleased with the fact that we've tried to tell the the, the, the other <laughs> side of the about story. her life, the other side of the story, and um, I'm, I'm hopefully she'll, you know, if she has a hatchet, she'll leave it at home. So. Well, I think she would definitely be proud of the book Parallel Lives. And uh, even though there's no ghosts there, we still encourage everybody to go and visit the Fall River Historical Society. You're opening uh, back up May 1st? Yes. Oh, we open the 1st of May. And, um, yeah, you know, it's a, a fascinating collection, and there's, there's a lot here for people to see. And, and, you know, we do have the largest collection of material, you know, extant on the board and story, which has been added to, you know, considerably over the years. But there's also a terrific amount of Fall River history here. And we're just completing the first phase of a major archival project. So anyone interested in doing research, genealogical or um, any sort of research pertaining to Fall River, we, we do have a wealth of material here that, you know, that's available to people. Excellent. And of course, the book Parallel Lives is available on the website for the uh, Historical Society, lizzieborden.org, as well as uh, on lizzieborden.parallellives.com, which are both linked up on the front of SpookySouthCoast.com. And, and it's also available on Amazon. It's actually been doing quite well on Amazon. So. And if you buy it from Amazon, if you buy it online, <laughs> you have to ship it, which is probably a pretty pricey venture unto itself. Yeah, well, if you buy it, it's, it's not an inexpensive book to ship because of the size. Mm-hmm. It weighs um, it's three and a quarter inches thick and weighs seven pounds, two ounces. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of book, over 500 photos. I'll tell you something interesting, too. Um, in the book, in addition to over 40 new letters, there are five new photos of Lizzie and it's interesting because so often we hear from people, you know, people will come in and say, oh, my grandmother remembered seeing Lizzie Borden, and she was a scary lady always dressed in black. And we hear this all the time. The five new photographs that we've published in this book, taken in 1916 and 1922, in all of them, she's wearing white head to toe. Hmm. So right, the the photographs don't lie. You know, we, <laughs> we, we have you know, the images, and there's nothing intimidating or scary about this woman at all. You know, people, children called her Auntie Borden, and that's exactly what she looked like in these photos. She looks like someone's old maid aunt. Well, they they have. There's a question from the chat room that I'm going to ask you as the final question okay. from Low Battery Dave, and we've only got a couple of minutes, so we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to kind of get a quick answer from you. And I know they said the book is not a whodunit, and that you weren't trying to solve the case, but do you have any kind of idea as to who might have committed the murders? No, personally, not in the least. But I think it would be presumptuous to have one, to be perfectly honest. Go. And I say that only because there's so little evidence that is that has surfaced. We didn't know her. We weren't there, and no one living is ever going to solve this case. So, 
So, so no. You know, I think it's a great whodunit, but mm-hmm. I have no idea. And it's, you know what, it's, it's almost inconsequential to the story that you're telling in this book, Parallel Lives, of Lizzie Borden and her Fall River. And we recommend that people pick up the book. Uh, and again, Amazon, uh, the website for the Historical Society, lizzieborden.org or lizzieborden.parallellives.com. Or, of course, you can get it at the Fall River Historical Society as well. You got it. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully having you back on in the future because I know you've got enough stuff out there that uh, and more stuff pouring in even after the book was published that we'll have plenty to talk about for years to come. Oh, great. Thanks so much. Thanks right. a lot, Tim. Thanks, guys. Have a great night. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. That is Michael Martins and Dennis A. Bennett of the Fall River Historical Society. And I don't know about you, Moniz, but I'm glad to have a chance to find out you know, the true story of Lizzie Borden, to find out from people who have done the research and talk to those who knew her, you know, what Lizzie Borden was really like. And we don't have to speculate and go by the ghost stories anymore. Yeah, I'm with you. I know that we had some issues with uh, with the video feed on Spooky yeah. TV. Our internet crapped out here in the studio, uh, which was the problem. But uh, we will have the podcast up online in its entirety for you to listen to uh, in the coming days. And that'll be your chance to, to really delve into it. I'm going to go back and listen because I'm sure there's even more information, you know, that I can find, and I'm I haven't finished Parallel Lives yet. <laughs> can I have it after you? Uh, yeah, you you'll, you can come to my house and read it. It's almost like the reference section, <laughs> Be- only because uh, I don't know if I want to keep lugging this around. <laughs> if you want to come with a with a uh, you know a, a I'll front, bring, I'll come, bring, with, yeah, come I'll, with a hand truck, a two wheel hand truck, and sure. a front loader for the car. I'll bring my buddy's truck. Yeah. Well. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to take me a while, but then uh, when I'm done, sure, you can borrow it. But uh, definitely go out and pick up your copy. Now, it sells for seventy nine ninety nine online, uh, but it's, it's money well spent because you are getting probably the last book you're ever going to need to read on Lizzie Borden because you're going to get the complete story of her and her Fall River. So, again, the book is called Parallel Lives, A Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and Her Fall River. That about does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week with our pre-Easter edition. Uh, we're actually we're going to be having uh, an interesting guest on. Uh, nothing's confirmed yet, so I don't want to I don't want to say it for sure. But uh, if it's the discussion that I think we're going to have, it's going to be pretty pretty cool. And then coming up uh, the week after that, we'll have Riley and Stephen Black of Black Cross Paranormal. So a whole bunch of stuff coming up in the coming weeks. Stay tuned to SpookySouthCoast.com for all the information. And uh, for Matt Costa, for Matt Moniz, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>